I'm Elias Grohl, the senior editor at CyberScoop, and I'm the new host of Safe Mode. I'm joined today by AJ Vicenz, a reporter here at CyberScoop. AJ, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. We're speaking on a Tuesday after the opening of the NFL season. You're a longtime Broncos fan. How are you feeling? Yeah, I'm sort of starting to question that. Actually, I'm lying. I'll probably never quit them, but... How many Broncos games have you missed in your career as a fan? Maybe since, let's see, I've probably missed less than a half dozen since 1997, which sounds really pathetic when I say it out loud. I think that's beautiful. I admire your devotion. It's unhealthy. How do you feel about your new coach? You have that very serious guy from New Orleans who never smiles, right? Sean Payton. He's he's a lot of fun. You know, compared to what we had last year, Nathaniel Hackett, I think this is a definite upgrade, although they lost the first game by the exact same score they lost the first game last year. So a lot of money and a draft pick later in a trade to New Orleans, maybe we're in the same place. That sounds like a metaphor for life. <laughs> it's a it's an unhealthy relationship I have with the NFL, broadly speaking, and the Denver Broncos. So maybe I should think through that a bit. You're certainly not alone. What do you think is worse, being a Broncos fan or a member of the TrickBot ransomware gang? Well, at least you get paid to be in the TrickBot gang, right? But on the flip side, you're, you might be targeted with a round of international sanctions and arrest warrants. So I don't know. Maybe I'll stick with the Broncos. Yeah, it's not so bad. So we're going to talk about the TrickBot ransomware gang today. That's next on Safe Mode. Welcome to Safe Mode. I'm Elias Grohl, Senior Editor at CyberScoop. Every week, we break down the most pressing issues in technology, provide you the knowledge and the tools to stay ahead of the latest threats, and take you behind the scenes of the biggest stories in cybersecurity. An attack is coming. It's about keeping us safe. He's just a disgruntled hacker. She's a super hacker. Stay alert. Stay safe. Stay safe. This is Safe Mode. So... AJ, we're going to talk about the TrickBot ransomware gang today. You've been covering these guys for the past year. And in the last week, the U.S. and U.K. governments, they indicted 11 members. The U.S. government unsealed an indictment for nine of the TrickBot members. So tell us about these guys and the indictments, the sanctions that came out last week. Yeah, so TrickBot, which sort of dates back to about 2016, was started out as a your run-of-the-mill sort of banking Trojan, stealing financial data, those sorts of I don't want to say low-level crimes, but you know, you're run-of-the-mill kind of cyber crime. But over the years, it really grew into becoming this really robust sort of delivery platform for other malware, and also separately, you know, became a botnet to be reckoned with. So, like you said, you know, last week the British and the American governments announced sanctions against eleven of the TrickBot members. They had earlier this year in February sanctioned seven others. So, you know, they're taking a lot of action against a sort of a broad group of people here. And also, as you mentioned, on top of that, in three jurisdictions across the U.S., the U.S. announced charges against nine of them. So these range from sort of the activities across the board, but there are some specific examples, you know, one of them being the May 2021 ransomware attack on Scripps Health in California. You know, it forced Scripps Health to lose access to healthcare systems at two of its hospitals. They couldn't access electronic medical records. And it forced the rerouting of stroke and heart 
attack patients from four of its hospitals, ultimately cost the company $113 million. So a lot of activity here, a lot of serious impact in the real world. So, you know, do we know anything deal. about the the size of this group or how many members are, are in TrickBot? We, is there anything we can say about how big there of an we, operation this is? Yeah. So it's, it's kind of hard to say at any given time how many were part of this, but there was a recently an excellent story in Wired breaking down some of this and estimates in that story range into the hundreds. Mm-hmm. So as with a lot of these cybercrime groups, right, you have the core group of developers and sort of main folks. And then there's like a, a couple of layers of rings outside of that. There's like regular affiliates and sort of associates. Then there's people that sort of dip in and out and overlap with other groups. So it, it's kind of impossible to say. But one of the reasons we know so much about TrickBot in particular is because in the wake of the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February of 2022, somebody leaked a lot of information about internal TrickBot operations. So, you know, 250,000 internal TrickBot messages, 2,500 IP addresses, 500 cryptocurrency wallets, thousands of domains and email addresses. And also, this must have been personal in some way, right? Because whoever did this put together a series of homemade kind of intelligence dossiers exposing some of the people involved in TrickBot. So this was really a burning an, an epic burn of this group. As Wired put it, it was, you know, one of the largest ever data dumps from a cybercrime group. But somehow it like flew under the radar. This happened right around the time mm. when the Conti ransomware group had its stuff leaked as well after they declared public allegiance to Russia. The government of Russia in the wake of the invasion, someone burned them too. And this kind of happened right around that same time. And even though it was much larger than the Conti leaks, it, it just didn't get as much attention. But clearly, you know, law enforcement intelligence agencies around the world were paying attention. And here we are today. Yeah. So I want to come back to that Wired story in a sec, which was really one of the probably one of the best looks we've ever gotten. I think of one of these ransomware gangs. But before we talk more about that, you know, you talked about Conti also. Can you talk a bit about the relationship between TrickBot and Conti? Yeah. So... TrickBot was in some ways could be used to deliver other malware. And according to the US government and other you know, private industry sources reporting, TrickBot was used by other cyber criminal groups, such as Conti, the ransomware sort of gang. And in all cases, right, we should say, right, that it's called the TrickBot gang, but it's also the name of the malware. So it's a little bit confusing, but mm. TrickBot is malware, but it's also a TrickBot gang. But anyway, so you have the, you know, groups like Conti and others using TrickBot to deliver their malware, their operations. But also when we're talking about the developers involved and whatnot, and some of the, you know, cryptors and, and people that work on these things, you know, hands that keyboard on these sort of projects, there's overlap mm. here. And there was a time when TrickBot kind of faded away in some ways in 2022. The infrastructure seemed to be winding down a little bit, but some people think that what was actually happening is they were sort of being subsumed into Conti, which was at that time, one of the more powerful sort of robust cybercrime groups. I mean, when, you know, when their leaks are gone through, for instance, you sort of see a very, in some ways mundane 
company. I mean, there's like a person that handles breaks and people complaining about salaries and <laughs> asking for days off and, you know, right. any sort of things we would think about a regular company, right? But these are very, yeah, exactly. These are very organized operations in that yeah. sense. And so it's really striking that this data was leaked in this manner and it really gave us a window into how these things function and just generate millions of dollars for these criminals. Did we get any new information from these indictments or the, the sanctions on the relationship between TrickBot and Russian intelligence? That's still kind of the broader open question. Some of the leaks point to overlaps and you, you can see these people in their messaging internally talking about sort of even them at their level sort of speculating on the connections at the top of some of these groups between mm. the heads of these groups and you know various aspects of the Russian security services. So the short answer is I don't think we got any new information on that front. Any of our listeners in the intelligence or law enforcement communities would probably have better ideas on what's <laughs> actually happening there. Mm. But I think that publicly speaking, it's it's a good guess that there was at least communication at that level. Now, the question is whether this is like active tasking or sort of a, you know, you can operate in our space and if we need something from you, we're going to get it mm. or that kind of thing. I mean, I, th I don't know that there's great public information on that at yeah, this point. Right. Okay. So let's go back to the Wired story. I want to talk a bit about the main character in that piece, Maxim Galochkin, who was one of the fellows who was indicted this week. He was indicted and sanctioned. So Maxim Galochkin, he's a key figure in TrickBot. Tell us a bit about who he is and, and kind of what, what his story is. Uh, I mean, the the top of the wired story gets it pretty well. You know, he's extremely online, right? He's a 41-year-old, wants to be rich, wants to make money. We know this because he said it in chats. And according to the government, you know, the indictments and whatnot, he was a cryptor. So his job was to make sure that the malware could evade antivirus software and those sorts of things. But he became a very central figure, according to the indictments and the public reporting in the operations of TrickBot and became sort of a central figure. He went by the name Bentley or Manuel internally. And you see a lot of the lower level people talking about having to run things through Bentley and mm. him having to deal with then his seniors. So pretty key figure in that food chain. But still at large and not arrested, right? No, not arrested. And that's kind of the broader question, right? Like yeah. there's always the debate about the value or efficacy of indicting these people whether they'll ever see the inside of a courtroom. But I think that this certainly limits where they can travel. He might be, want to be careful about where he vacations because there are examples of countries that have extradition treaties with the U.S. and then they do end up in U.S. courtrooms. So, And also it sort of sends a message that the U.S. government saying, we see you, we know who you are, and we're, we're going to say so out loud. Right. All right, well, thanks for your great reporting on that. Before we go, I also want to update listeners on a story we talked about a few weeks back. That was the story of a Microsoft encryption key that went missing and was used by hackers based in China to go after email inboxes belonging to senior U.S. officials, including the Commerce Secretary. So Microsoft has now concluded its investigation about how that key was stolen, and it's a real, real doozy. So according to Microsoft, the story begins with a signing key, a signing service crashing in April 2021. And that crash created what was known as a crash dump. This is a file that 
contains data about the state of a program when it crashes. And due to an error, that file contained a signing key that ended up being stolen. So the crash dump lived on Microsoft's quite secure production system. But then when the crash dump was transferred to its corporate environment, which is a still secure but less secure system, the signing key was included in that file, again, due to an error. It should have been detected during that transfer, but it was not. At some point after April 2021, when this, this signing service crashed and created this crash dump file that contained the signing key, a hacker affiliated with this China-based hacking group gained access to a Microsoft's engineer's credentials. That engineer had access to the crash dump containing the signing key that was stolen and uh, this is how Microsoft believes the key was pilfered. But are we sure that's how? We don't know. So this is the great mystery, right? This was April 2021. This was several years ago. And due to its own log retention policies, Microsoft doesn't have access to the logs that would prove definitively that this is how the key was actually exfiltrated. And there's there's a bit of irony at play here, right? Because when this attack was first detected, Microsoft customers needed to have a higher tier, more expensive plan in order to have access to the logs that would have detected an attack of this nature being carried out. And now, in a twist of fate, Microsoft doesn't have access to the logs that would definitively prove how its signing key was stolen. How would you say this whole Microsoft imbroglio has gone over in the InfoSec community? There's fury. I mean, I will say, though, folks have been giving Microsoft a lot of credit for this investigation and the fact that they've been able to trace back to a quite obscure system, you know, a compelling theory as to how this thing was stolen. Stealing an encryption key from a crash dump file that's been transferred from a production system to a corporate environment. It's kind of like, it's like rifling through the trash and discovering the key to the house safe containing the family jewels, right? And so it's a real obscure way, I would say, to pull something like this off. So the fact that they've figured it out and that they have a compelling theory of it, folks have been very impressed, I would say, that Microsoft has gotten this far or that Microsoft was able to figure it out. But at the same time, there's a lot of unanswered questions here, right? We're still unsure about the full scale of the attack, whether it's been used in other instances. Given that this isn't a definitive theory of the case, if you will, as to how the the key was stolen, it's Microsoft's best guess as to how the key was stolen. But we don't know for sure. And broadly speaking, the fact that the signing key was able to authenticate the type of tokens that it was able to has led to extreme frustration in the security community, right? That Microsoft designed a system that was vulnerable to this type of behavior in the first place. Do you think it'll do anything to assuage the fears or, I'm sorry, the the multiple investigations that have been called for in Congress? Well, we're going to get the Cyber Safety Review Board is looking at this instance now. So they're probably going to be the the last best word on this. This is um, the kind of quasi-independent investigation board that sits within DHS, roughly modeled on the NTSB, the National Transportation Safety Board, that investigates cyber incidents, they're now examining this case and are going to try to figure out how the key was stolen. So we'll get a report from them. We'll find out. Should be interesting. Yeah. AJ, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Up next, 
We're going to talk to Bo Woods and Josh Corman, the founders of I Am the Cavalry, the grassroots hacking organization that is celebrating their 10-year anniversary. I'm joined today by Bo Woods and Josh Corman, the founders of I Am the Cavalry. I'm the Cavalry began 10 years ago with a simple realization. Everything was about to be connected to the internet or made smart with software, medical devices, cars, home appliances. And yet, all of these things can be improved in some way by bringing them online, but that also means they can be hacked. I'm the Cavalry began as a grassroots effort to get hackers involved in addressing widespread vulnerabilities by getting them involved with policy and serving as ambassadors of the security profession. Bo and Josh, welcome to the show. I thought we'd start just at the beginning. We're marking the 10-year anniversary of I Am The Cavalry. And so let's start at the beginning. How did this group form? What's your origin story? That could take an hour. The short version for me is I had been researching the rise of anonymous and hacktivism. And I, I'm a philosopher by training, entered the hacker community, thought that would all be useless. But it turned out, as I saw it, technology was having a profound impact on technology, society, people, nation states, et cetera. After going pretty high and deep into the federal government, bringing top five of the world's best hackers into Fort Meade for two days to try to speak truth to power and warn them about our increased dependence on connected systems, I kind of found out that the cavalry isn't coming, that no one's going to save us, that we're kind of on our own for a while. They said people would have to die first or, you know, there's no political will to do this thing. There's no political will to do that thing. And we were pretty crestfallen Concurrent with that, I found out that my mom, who was 58, had a stroke, and we later found out it was brain cancer, and we had to hospice her, and it was pretty traumatizing and emotional. And it was actually during her funeral where I realized the last time I'd been in her church prior to that was the Sandy Hook shooting. She wanted to say goodbye to her friends, and everyone was kind of traumatized by that. She was a superintendent, so a bunch of teachers around, a bunch of kids around, all scared. And the guy kept saying... The guy at the front of the church kept saying, why is there evil in the world? Why is there evil in the world? For like two, three hours. And I remember being frustrated and upset as a dad, upset that I was losing my mom, upset for a bunch of reasons. So when I had to go back there for her funeral, I said, oh, gee, I don't want to be angry at my mom's funeral. <laughs> so I tried to process that. And when I went up to give a eulogy, I, I realized that she had been my science teacher in seventh grade for some twist of fate. And I was trying to channel something constructive. And I said, I learned a lot of things from her. And one of them is that darkness isn't a thing. It's an absence of light. And cold is not a thing. It's an absence of heat. So maybe instead of asking, why is there evil in the world? Maybe it's not the presence of evil, but maybe the absence of good. And maybe if something's missing in the world, we got to put it there. So I asked the whole congregation and family and whatnot, what's the absence of Marie, my mom's name? And I didn't have an answer to my own question, but... As I watched everyone's faces, I said, we don't get to find out because now it falls to us to do what she was doing. And for something clicked in my head that said, if the cavalry isn't coming on these things that I was warning about, maybe it falls to us to be what's missing. So later that year after I mourned and whatnot, went to hacker conferences, Nick Prococo and I gave a talk, said the cavalry isn't coming. We didn't have a name for the group, but we said, what is the hacker community willing and able to do? How can we act differently? How can we change ourselves? Our dependence on connected technology is growing faster than our ability to secure it in areas affecting public safety, human life, economic, national security. And everyone said, well, why would I bother if people have to die first? And I said, well, we think we can be safer sooner if we build the trust, establish the relationships, get a head start, and they'll turn to us instead of lesser people with lesser motives and lesser ideas. So we didn't know if anybody would say yes, but 
we had a handful of hackers willing and able to try. And we said, if this speaks to you, come to DerbyCon in six weeks and we'll establish our mission, vision, goals and see if there's something we can do. We had about 50 people in the room say, hell yeah. Met Bo about an hour later in the speaker room. We exchanged really good whiskey and uh, soju. And Bo was all in, but he could tell that part of the story, if you like. And that weekend, we also spoke at DEF CON. We were given the main stage. So Nick and I gave a, a similar talk. I think it's still one of the top 10 DEF CON talks, if I recall. But we had a couple hundred. And then the next thing you know, we stopped counting after a couple thousand volunteers of the coalition are willing, just willing to help on either medical or cars or something. And as we got more success, it began more success. 10 years ago, there was no CISA. There was no defensive cyber physical systems part of the government. There wasn't a whole lot. What's the line we use, Bo? We have no idea what we're doing, but it seems to be working. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, like 10 years ago, the warnings of our impending cyber doom were, you know, there to see, right? And like 10 years later, here we are and everything is connected to the internet and our moment of cyber doom is kind of here, right? Things are getting hacked left and right. We have pervasive insecurity. Like, How do you guys feel, you know, looking back on the last 10 years, you've been trying to secure devices, like what's worked, what hasn't? How do you feel about the the past decade of work on this issue? That's a really good question. You know, we talked a lot about this back in the day, but you know, the question of are we getting better or not? And I think Josh, you said that it's not a question of are we getting better? It's are we getting better faster than we're getting worse? And what does that answer look like? And if you look at the confluence of characteristics or features of our world today, you know, we're adding more connectivity to things. We're depending on them more. We are expanding the amount of software in them. We are getting more connected adversaries and we are globalizing more quickly. So that's five factors that are all going up. So it kind of doesn't matter how much security we put into the kind of after the fact bolted on approach. We will never be able to to outpace the speed at which we are adding attack surface, adding connectivity and exposure to adversaries, adding adversaries, adding motivation types for adversaries. One of the things that we have tried to do is to say, we've got to do something different than just incremental additive effects and incremental additive security on top of other things and go get to root causes. And a lot of that does run through public policy which is one of the reasons why we've tended to gravitate towards a more public policy related focus at working with, you know, in the US, members of Congress and staffers. We've got a ton of staffers who are either still in in Congress or have graduated to other roles. They've been great allies working with DHS and CISA, working with FDA, working with FTC, Federal Trade Commission, Department of Commerce, some of our allies there working with states, local governments, because, you know, in a lot of cases, they're the regulator of record, for instance, for healthcare facilities. And so we've really taken an approach of, we're going to try a bunch of things. Some of them won't work. Some of them will work. And how do we capitalize on the ones that work to get us safer sooner by working together? And which of the ones are just kind of wasted effort? And I think we've found that we're able to go farther, faster, by not talking about the technical stuff, but by listening, understanding what people care about, building some empathy and building trust before we even start talking about what to do about the problems that we have. Because if we don't agree about the problems, the size of them, the prioritization of them, 
then it's much, much harder to get people on board with taking any kind of action, let alone something that may be you know, outside of what they typically view as one of their go-to options for these things. To Bo's point, the, the question of scale becomes, okay, if we've been doing this for a decade, let's not just keep going along and get along. Like, If something was missing a decade ago, at this point, at our inflection point, do we end it, transform it into something new? to solve new problems or combine it with other initiatives to get to critical mass. You know, what got better? What got worse? Do we have the right skills or network? Part of this crazy journey brought Bo and I into emergency federal service during the pandemic. You know, fledgling CISA, largely fashioned over what we were doing in the cavalry. Director Krebs called and said, hey, um, we come serve your country for a year. So I got pulled in to be the chief strategist for what became the CISA COVID task force. And we hired a bunch of outsiders, including Bo, to try to protect hospitals, their supply chains, vaccine supply chains during exogenous global events and record high volume and variety of ransom disruptions on healthcare. So that was uh, not something I had in my plan <laughs> and not a natural fit to put hacker philosophers in the federal government. But, you know, we were turned to and I think we did a pretty novel job trying to both lead during the pandemic, but also try to teach CISA and the federal government new tricks that they would keep and that might give them a vector for what to do once we left. But while that isn't a positive or a negative, I think when I reflect on my time in federal government, it was 18 months to the day, we said that these things would be hackable and could lead to cyber physical harm. If you think of the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we had successful disruption the last couple of years on the water you drink the food you put on your table, oil and gas pipelines for your cars, homes, and supply chains, schools your kids go to, municipalities around towns and cities, federal agencies, and even timely access to patient care with proven moral consequences. We said that our dependence was growing faster and our ability to secure it in areas affecting public safety and human life. And we should not want for safety and resilience of basic human needs like water and food and shelter and safety. But we're there. I would say we have some proof of concept and some successes. And we've certainly hacked the lexicon and we built trust and trust networks with people that otherwise would have been afraid of hackers. The good news is we have some positive patterns that might be scalable and repeatable. The bad news is the attackers have shown up before the defenders have. And we have a lot of work to do. You know, I think a lot of people would look at the pairing of hackers and public policy. And, you know, I use the term hacker widely as somebody who takes a different route to a goal through technology. They'd look at that pairing and say like, wow, that's weird. Why, why are hackers and policymakers natural allies or what makes this combination work so well? And I think, you know, a lot of times the hacker community, the security researcher community, some of the other folks who work in the technical domain, we see a problem and we work towards it, particularly with people who are used to doing, you know, penetration testing or security research we see a, a technical goal and we work around any obstacle. We map out the attack pathways. We map out the ways that we could potentially go about achieving it. And we systematically try different ones. We're persistent. We're tenacious. We're creative and clever. And so when we see a public good goal and objective, you know, we may not have the skills. We may not have the background. We may not have you know, a master's degree in public policy or in international relations. But we've got curiosity, we've got goodwill, 
We've got a mind like a sponge. We can absorb things quickly. We can jump into things with a low level of comfort, a high level of discomfort, if we think it's worth it, and go and do stuff. And you know, a lot of the things that Josh and I have done through I Am the Cavalry or that other people from our community have done over the past, you know, what, 30 years plus working with public policymakers has been uncomfortable for us, but we knew it was necessary and also hard. The presence of difficulty in the equation didn't stop us. It just made us recalibrate how we were going to do something and who we were going to team up with. I think of you guys in one way as a bit of an evolution of the relationship between the hacker community and government, right? And in particular, you're almost like the post loft crew in a way, right? And more willing to really engage with government in a way, right? And I'm curious what you guys think of right now, the current state of the relationship between government and the security researcher hacker community. And what do you think it should look like? Sorry for the involuntary laugh. I live up in New England and I'm friendly with a lot of the loft guys. Just spent the 4th of July with Space Rogue and Weld Pond. And we were just talking about what you just said. Like, I, I finally read Space Rogue's book about loft. And yeah, they were definitely doing this stuff way before this was even an idea. But they also re- absolutely recognized that we made new strides and, and new victories using some new methods. In fact, Space Rogue was one of the day one preloaded volunteers for the cavalry. He was all in. We talked about it at ThoughtCon that summer prior and and whatnot. But I wouldn't have framed it that way, but you're the second person that said something like that. So honored to be confused in proximity, I guess. But you look in the last couple of years, we've had tons of hackers testifying to Congress, joining government workshops. Bo started something through the cavalry, what, I don't know, maybe year three or whatever of Hackers on the Hill trying to get more congressional briefings. This year was the first inaugural Hackers in the White House. Chris Inglis and ONCD and NCS hosted us, smaller group. So not only is Hacker not equated to criminal now, where I think it still was 10 years ago, and we've had pretty big strides on decriminalization of research with Computer Fraud and Abuse Act carve-outs with the adoption of coordinated vulnerability disclosure, making it cool. Now it's a binding operational directive for all agencies. I think the attitude and tone is not, oh, these people are someone to be afraid of. It's we need something beyond the public-private partnership cliche. We need civil society and technically literate people to give us an honest broker kind of perspective on these things. So there's almost like unprecedented amount of government engagement. And now the question is, are we actually giving a consistent prioritization, a consistent message? The next phase is going to be prioritization and harmonization of what are the critically important things and how do we make sure we have tangible outcomes and results on those? What are the big fights coming up for you or what are the big issues you guys are working on right now? What, what feels top of mind for of civically minded hackers engaging in policy issues? For me, coming out of CISA, what was very, very clear is a lot of the public-private partnerships, I think the government's listening on this front halfway, but a lot of this was the private sector prefers voluntary things versus mandatory things. And I think any modern industry with the potential to affect public safety, human life eventually gets some regulations. So there's a balance of power shift from purely voluntary to, as you saw in the White House National Cybersecurity Strategy, lots of hackers contributed to that. And the notion of rebalancing accountability responsibilities and more regulatory for safety critical things is coming. That's the good news. The bad news is some of the most exposed parts of critical infrastructure or what I call target-rich 
but cyber poor. It's the have nots. They don't participate in public private partnerships. They don't join ISACs. They don't join sector courting councils. They have less negotiating power and lobbyists and government affairs people. So I think some of the most exposed areas that you're going to hear about at our track at besides Las Vegas are like water and wastewater, small, medium, and lower electricals, food supply chain entities that you haven't heard of, but are critically important to feeding the country. Things like small rural healthcare that are experiencing record high closures, independent of cybersecurity disruptions, but you just saw one in Illinois cite their ransomware as a contributing cause of their death and closure for good. The only thing worse than a hospital being down for six weeks from a ransom attack is being down forever. You can't have care deserts in a first world country that needs you know to go three or four hours away for something that, that may be fatal in less than 30 minutes. I think the big fight I see ahead is how do you help these target-rich, cyber-poor, basic human needs like water, electricity, food, urgent care, in a way that the public-private partnerships are just not suited to do yet. And any relief that will come will be slower than is necessary. So to me, that seems to be attracting a ton of my attention. But for Bo, I know you've been doing a lot with the AI village and chat GPT and other topics. So there's so many fronts to fight. Perhaps that's one of the reasons we're struggling with what's the appropriate way to scale the positive lessons from the last decade. So I moved to, to DC in 2016 after never really being too involved in public policy. And so for me, it was just a really interesting learning experience. And one of the things I picked up on pretty quickly is that a lot of people in public policy tend to think of anything that is not government and sometimes anything that is not academia as a very broad industry group or a private sector group. And so you get people who are independent cybersecurity researchers, independent innovators and inventors, technically literate, people grouped in with public relations, you know, government relations folks, and they have often very, very different things to say. And where I think in 2016, and even more so in 2013, a decade ago when I and the Cavalry launched, it was the case that a lot of the independent folks or the people who didn't necessarily speak on behalf of a company were not in conversations. Today, like Josh mentioned, there were a ton of people who contributed ideas to the national cybersecurity strategy even going all the way back to pre-Cyber Solarium Commission, some of the formational thoughts and ideas that went into the commission formation, the commission report, which called for the National Cyber Director, which then became the strategy and the implementation plan and the education workforce strategy that we just saw come out. So there's a, there's a ton to build on here, and there's a lot of really good outcomes and lessons to be learned. And I think that at whatever level, policymakers are, whether it's you know federal with an agency in Congress, at a state, local, municipality level, bringing in some of those folks who aren't the typical go-to in you know, what might be lumped in as private sector can be really, really educational and can help shed a different light on things where it's not you know, one side versus another. It's there are different ways that we can succeed together. Maybe last question for you guys on this. The problem of bridging technical communities and policy ones is famously hard, right? And we're seeing this play out now with, for example, DC's interest in regulating AI. And at the same time, the policy community doesn't really know where to begin and, and trying to address AI risks, right? I'm wondering if 
you guys have any thoughts on the broader issue of how to bridge that divide, building on your work from cybersecurity issues? Are there aspects of the cybersecurity focus work that you think kind of has lessons for trying to bridge the divide between technology and policy communities on other issues? We're going to cover a lot of the what worked and what didn't work in the B-Sides Las Vegas keynote. It'll be recorded. And then the track, in fact, one of my things I'm looking most forward to is we have a two-hour block with Dr. Suzanne Schwartz and her amazing team from FDA. It's going to work with Bo, reflecting on a decade of high trust, high impact collaboration and tangible outcomes, saving lives in real ways. Uh, not just as a victory lap, which of course people deserve, but like as a blueprint that could be extracted and repeated by anyone on any topic if they want to do something like this. If you want to change the world, we're going to hear from Suzanne and her team how we were less threatening, what worked, what didn't. She did the first ever safety communication or recall of a medical device with no proof of loss of life. Usually they would have had to wait for harm. And within the first two years, we had that recall set a message to all the other medical device makers that they were going to have to stand up straight. She took our Hippocratic Oath for Connected Medical Devices and made it the blueprint for the pre-market guidance and then the post-market guidance and then updates to that. And then that got me named to a congressional task force because she nominated for healthcare industry cybersecurity. And that kind of trust continues to accrue and pay dividends. But one of the probably the most crowning achievements of this collaboration is we passed, you know, helped pass a couple federal laws. But the one specific to this trajectory is I think the very first day of the very first briefings that I did, I think it was the second briefing I did on the Hill in 2014 was basically outlining what became the Patch Act, which was what are the minimum cybersecurity hygiene requirements for medical devices? Things like, can you be patchable? Do you work with hackers acting in good faith with coordinated disclosure programs? Do you have a software bill of materials or SBOM? And the staffer that I briefed kind of laughed at me and I said, Am I funny? Am I naive? Is this never going to work? She goes, no, I think it's really elegant. It's just, it's going to take a decade. Nothing happens fast in this town. And nine years later, minus two weeks, I was on my honeymoon and got a bunch of texts saying, oh my God, congratulations. Because the Patch Act basically got signed into the omnibus bill. And it took 10 years. And I called her, I called her that staffer who now works at FDA. And I said, I beat you by a year. <laughs> <laughs> she said, touche. So she'll, she'll be part of that celebration as well. But and this is really the, the minimum seatbelt loss for cyber. It's the first time through any regulator we have um, mandatory minimums for cyber physical systems in U.S. law. And it's been in effect since March. It's going to get more teeth shortly at the end of their fiscal year. And what this means is instead of us just finding and fixing a single flaw on a single device, we've changed the rules for all 10,000 medical device makers. Instead of this just being a luxury for people with really big budgets at big hospitals, this is going to help large, medium, small, and rural any equipment you buy is going to be more dependable and reliable. So I don't think that that's a, an easy path to say, let's do a 10-year cycle on some partial law, you know, one sector at a time. So we have to find a way to scale this better. But we do have an existence proof that you can set a minimum bar. If you look at whatever new emerging advancing technologies, whether it's chat GPT, large language models, artificial intelligence, machine learning, Post-quantum cryptography, we, for 20 or 30 years, we've known a lot of the, the principles in a rough sense that help make more securable things. Or at a minimum, we have known what reliably fails and what reliably gets things compromised and has major security issues. And we have avoided adopting them. Sometimes it's because it's not easy, right? Like some things are just hard to do. 
but where it's this fairly traditional, fairly well understood space, and we are failing to act. What does it mean when we increase the level of difficulty before we've mastered the one below it? Well, you're obviously going to ha- you're going to run into issues. You're going to run into emergent problems that build on and compound the ones at that lower layer. But I think that one of the to point to a, a success or a win or something that I think will help us with that is not the partial legislation or the service that we've individually done, but it's the people that we've worked with, the teammates that we've built along the way. You know, Josh, I reflected a couple of weeks ago on some of the folks that we worked with who they've really, really progressed fast in their careers and it's been great. It's not because we've had like some Midas touch or because we're awesome. It's just if you help people build a toolkit that allows them to do more, and if you work with the people who are mentally agile and flexible, who really want to solve some of these problems, they'll go places. And a number of them got absorbed into the White House or you know the upper echelons of agencies or advanced their careers as congressional staffers or are a part of the European Union policymaking groups or what have you. And it's just kind of amazing to look around at all the people that we've worked with over the past 10 years and kind of can't end a conversation without talking about all of those people who have really, really pioneered things and been bold and been brave along with us to do something maybe a little bit uncomfortable and maybe a little bit crazy. But hey, you know, it seems to be working, right? And it will get darker before it gets better. So I just keep coming full circle to this notion that whether it's AI or any of these other things, I think I said it right 10 years ago, our dependence is growing faster than our ability to secure it. And when you say it that way, you can either make it more dependable or depend upon it less. And I think the path forward for resilience isn't going to be all cyber solutions. It's going to be ensuring that the dependence we place upon this technology is well-placed and that we don't ever over-depend on these in areas that are premature. So we're reckoning with over-dependence and undependable things right now. And the default instinct for the first 10 years has been, how do we make it more dependable? I think we're going to have to backtread or create alternatives and more sane dependence levels for the next 10 years. I think that's a great note to end it on. Thanks so much for coming on the show, guys. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Safe Mode, a weekly podcast on cybersecurity and digital privacy brought to you by CyberScoop. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and a review. And share it with your friends, your mom, your dad. Nobody wants to get hacked. To find out more information or to contact me, your host, please visit cyberscoop.com.